the Sunday Sermons Podcast. We're continuing our series titled No More Kings. In this series, we've been going through the book of Judges and using that as a backdrop to kind of highlight some of, the, some of the other kings that we allow to take control in our life. Some of those things that we allow to take the, the top spot, the top priority, the number one thing. Even as believers, even as people that know that God should be in that spot, there are things that we struggle to not let take control, to not let have that king spot in our life. Throughout this series, we're looking at several of those things and trying to highlight them, not to glorify them, but to kind of hold ourselves accountable to not letting those things become kings in our life. Have you ever had one of those moments when someone was confident that you were capable of doing something, but you weren't so sure? Ever had one of those moments when you felt that God was calling you to do something, but you weren't sure he had the right number? You were, you were pretty sure he had called the wrong person? This morning we're going to take a look at Judges chapter 6 through 8, and we're going to look at this idea of a king that a lot of us let take control, self-doubt. In these three chapters, as we unpack uh, the story of Gideon, we're going to look at uh, Gideon and the Midianites. Now, before we jump into this idea of self-doubt, I want to just make it absolutely clear that I think this king is something that most, if not all of us, struggle with. We, we have that voice in our head that tells us you can't or you shouldn't. I think it's a really common thing for us to let this take control and lead the narrative. Personally, I don't think I can count high enough to put a number on the times that I've let self-control lead or self-doubt lead the narrative of my life. Even writing this message for this morning, like the number of times I went, you can't say that, or you shouldn't say that, or you can't do it that way. Even this morning, standing in the atrium and looking around and asking somebody else that I was standing near and going, does it seem like there's no one here this morning? <laughs> like, did, did Joni or June send out an email that said I was going to preach? Like, did they all just stay home? Like, there's those voices in our head that just continue to kind of tell us things that aren't necessarily the truth, right? There's that doubt that wants to lead and tell the narrative. That's where we're going to start our story this morning. We're going to start in Judges chapter 6. As we read through these chapters, we see a very familiar cycle continuing in the book of Judges. The people of Israel have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. They are given over by God into the hands of one of their enemies. And they wait in the hands of that enemy, until they are ready to cry out to God for help. And when they finally cry out to God for help, he sends help. In this book, they're called Judges. So in this particular story, the Israelites, after they have done evil in the eyes of the Lord, are handed over to a group of people known as the Midianites. Now you may have heard the name Gideon before, 
but you would be forgiven if you'd never heard of the Midianites. Just a few times that they're mentioned, not really given a whole lot of information. But the Midianites are a nomadic people. And they just kind of roam and wander through. In this period of time in Israel, the Midianites would come in and they would attack the Israelites. And they would either steal or destroy all of their crops, their livestock, all of their resources, and leave the Israelites with as little as possible, nothing if they could do it. And this goes on for seven years before the Israelites finally cry out to God. Just a, a really quick aside, I always uh, am amazed by the number of years that the Israelites are willing to put up with whatever they're being dealt by the hands of whatever enemy they're handed over to at the time before they go, oh wait, I should ask God for help. And it's really easy for us to read that story and go, seven years, really? But sometimes we're just as stubborn and slow to ask for help. So the Israelites uh, suffer at the hands of the Midianites for seven years before they finally cry out to God for help. And into the story enters Gideon. Now for those of you that have been in church for a while, Gideon is probably a really familiar name. You've likely heard it a lot and you go, oh, that's the fleece guy, right? Yes, Gideon is the guy with the fleece, but there's so much more in his story than just that moment. When we first meet Gideon, he is kind of hiding out on the threshing floor of a wine press. If you read uh, stories about what a wine press and what the threshing floor would have been, uh, there's two different options. One was just any flat surface that they could kind of beat out the wine. The other, more common, was a, a lowered down place. The flat surface was below uh, the wine press on the top. Right? It's likely because of the context we get that this is the type of wine press that Gideon is in. The threshing floor was the bottom. It says that he's beating out wheat in the threshing floor, hoping to hide it from the Midianites. And remember, the Midianites would come in and they'd try to take all the resources, all the food, anything that the Israelites had. And so here's Gideon hiding, hoping that he would get to keep the wheat that he's preparing to make food with. That's where we pick up the story in uh, verse 11 of chapter 6. So now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Ebezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor. That's how the angel initially addresses Gideon. Maybe he has a different definition of that phrase than I do. But mighty man of valor is not the first description that comes to my mind when we start the story of Gideon. Yes, mighty man of valor hiding because your enemies might find you with a little bit of food. I think Gideon picks up on the irony of this too. If you check out how he responds to the angel. He says, Gideon says to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, 
Why then has all of this happened to us? And where all of His wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon's response is filled with doubt and possibly a healthy dose of sarcasm. Doubt about God and doubt about himself. Maybe some of his statements of doubt sound familiar to you. If God is real, then where is he? If he's done all these great things, then how come we're struggling so much? I've heard about all the things he's supposedly done before. Where is he now? But none of these doubts seem to phase the angel of God at all. God isn't mad at Gideon for struggling with doubts. They don't change his view of Gideon or of what he's calling Gideon to do. He lets Gideon vent his doubts and then simply says, go in this might of yours and save Israel. But Gideon too pivots. Not only does he have doubts about God, but also about himself the angel tells Gideon that God is sending him to save, uh, to save Israel, and Gideon replies by listing all of the reasons why he is not the right guy. Maybe some of these doubts sound familiar to you too. I'm from the weakest clan. Maybe you might say it like this, I don't have the right pedigree, education, background, skill set, resources, fill in the blank with whatever else you want to list there, right? Gideon says, I am the weakest in my father's house. Maybe you might say it this way, I, I'm not good at anything. There's other people that are so much better than me. Why me? God responds with, to Gideon's doubt simply by saying, I will be with you. You've got this. I love that he doesn't go on a long diatribe uh, shooting down all of Gideon's doubts. He doesn't go into long descriptions of calling out things that Gideon should have remembered about things that God had done. He just says, okay, but I said go, and I'll be with you. God was focused on something that was different than what Gideon was. Clearly, God sees something that Gideon doesn't or can't. What do you see when you look in the mirror? I know that sounds like a really cliche statement. It really kind of is. We've heard it a lot, right? But that statement kind of highlights something that often rings true for many of us. What you see is what you get. And what do I mean by that? The way we see ourselves plays a huge role in the decisions that we make and the actions that we decide to take. If you see yourself as weak 
and incapable, then you are unlikely to try anything that requires strength or courage. If you see yourself as strong and talented, then you are more likely to try things, maybe even things that you shouldn't try to do. The best example I can think of is the early rounds of auditions in American Idol. Most of you have watched it. There's people on there that they are convinced, I can sing. Somebody's probably even told them they could. But they probably shouldn't be on there, right? But the way we see ourselves plays a huge role in the decisions we make, the actions that we take. Please don't mishear me. I am not in any way trying to say that you could just positive think your way into things. There are certainly real struggles that no amount of positive thinking just magically makes disappear. I am saying that the way that we view ourselves, the things that we believe about ourselves, play a huge role in what we do. But those views aren't always accurate. We can easily start to listen to a voice in our head that tells us that we're not capable, that we're not good enough, strong enough, or worthy enough. We can adopt a view of ourselves that if we allow it to, will distort and steal away what we could actually accomplish. Here's Gideon hiding on the threshing floor of a wine press, convinced that he is a weak nobody. Literally from his own words, that's how he views himself. Even when talking to the angel of the Lord who is calling him a mighty warrior. Gideon was looking at what he thought was important. His status, his clan, his strength. All the things that the world was judging his abilities and his worth by. But those, those are almost never the things that God uses to judge who we are. Our resources, our talents, our status, our reputation, God doesn't pay attention to any of those things. God looks at what's on the inside, not on all the standards that are on the outside. And check out the story of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16 for a really easy reminder of that. That God looks on what's inside of us. God looks at the heart, not all of these other things that we prop up as standards that we should be reaching towards. The author and pastor, Levi Lusco, puts it this way. He says, it's easy to look at what we have and only see what we don't have. We can so easily get caught up in a comparison game. Right, we could see all the things that we don't have and let that cause us to doubt any of the things that we do. We could see all the talents and the abilities that we don't have and conclude that what we do have isn't enough. God can't use me because I'm not as good of a speaker as this person or can't use me because I don't have the resources that this person has. And we could very easily focus on what we don't have and completely miss the things that we do. We can let that voice in our head start pointing out all of the ways that we aren't worthy, aren't capable, aren't valuable. And we could start to believe that narrative and doubt ourselves into inaction and doubt ourselves out of what God has called us to. 
I love the way that John Acuff, Christian blogger, speaker, and author says, says, don't confuse the familiarity of the negative voice in your head, you hear in your head with honesty. You might have heard it for years, but chances are it started lying to you on day one. He continues that quote and says, it might be familiar, it might be automatic, it might be loud and persuasive, but that doesn't mean that that negative voice you hear in your head is true. Self-doubt can creep in sometimes without us even noticing it. We just start to believe the doubt and the false narrative. Maybe you had somebody tell you that you weren't very good at something, or maybe you've had a constant stream of negative things told towards you or pointed out for you, and you just kind of latched onto those things and said, this is who I am. Eventually, we let that voice become so loud that it drowns out any other voice, including God's. Here is Gideon literally standing across, maybe sitting across, from the angel of the Lord who is calling him a mighty warrior, and Gideon says, sorry, wrong guy. Here's a messenger come from God to call out Gideon to this great thing, and Gideon goes, I think you've mistaken me. I'm the weak guy from the weak clan. You came to the wrong address. I think you were looking for the wine press over there. He's not the strongest guy. In fact, he says he's the weakest in his entire family. And that his family is kind of the black sheep of, of the clan, right? That he's, they're the weak ones. No one's looking to them for help or assistance. They just kind of smile and nod like, oh, Gideon, yeah. But he is so convinced of these things that even when the angel calls him to something more and tells him something different, it's a struggle for Gideon to see it. God addresses Gideon as mighty warrior. Gideon sees himself as a weak link. God sees Gideon as a warrior capable of delivering his people and Gideon sees the guy hiding on the threshing floor. We all struggle at times with that voice in our head that's telling us that we are less than. The voice pointing out all of our flaws and all of our shortcomings and all the reasons why we shouldn't, can't, won't. But God sees us differently. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, this isn't a message about, well, you just positive think yourself into anything, but it is a reminder that if we let that negative voice remind us of all of the bad and all of the shortcomings and all of the less thans, we are at risk of missing the angel standing across from us saying, hey, God wants you to do this. We're at risk of not hearing God's voice when he calls us to bigger things because we're too busy listening to the voice that tells us we're not worthy. The question becomes, which voice do we listen to? Whose voice are we molding our life to? When God called me to ministry, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I had no 
interest. I could not see myself doing that. In fact, I could think of a million reasons why I should not, and those were just the ones I could come up with off the top of my head. I was shy, reserved, hated speaking in public, or even the idea of speaking in public. I wasn't even all that sure I liked people. <laughs> just being honest. Me, share my faith out loud. Are you crazy? Me, you want me to speak in front of people. I think you've got the wrong number. I had plenty of doubts, but I was seeing things very differently than the way God was seeing them. In fact, for years, I ignored it and went my own way and did my own thing. I couldn't see what God was doing or why He was seeing it that way. My doubts were blocking my view. That's one of the big obstacles with doubt, is that doubt blocks vision. I'm amazed when I read through Gideon's story. I mean, Gideon seems pretty stubborn, doesn't he? Here's this angel calling him a mighty warrior, and he's like, let me give you a different definition, right? He's absolutely convinced that he is completely useless. Not even a visit from the angel of the Lord shakes him from his doubts. And even when it looks like maybe Gideon is starting to get it, his doubts come back. Check out what he says in verse 17 and following. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the angel said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar and there to, the Lord, there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which still belongs to the Asbirites. Even having a conversation with an angel, Gideon isn't 100% sure yet. He wants to be positive that this is real. You ever do that before? Like, I, I'm pretty sure there's all these signs, it's pretty clear, but just in case. So he asks for a sign. And the angel does this cool sign, and Gideon realizes what's going on. He lights this uh, dampened meat on fire on a rock. There's no way that should happen, right? Gideon realizes what's going on, and he's given instructions to go and tear down an altar to Baal and the Asherah poles that were in his town on his father's property. But Gideon still isn't 100% sure 
And so he goes at night when no one would see him. He's given a very clear instruction from God. It's very clear that this is God talking to him and giving him instruction. And he's still like, great, wait till everyone goes to sleep. And then I'll, I don't want anybody to notice. He's so afraid of what the people will think. He knows he's following instructions from God. He's still afraid of the people around him. Ever happened to you? You know what God's calling you to do, but you're like, but can I do it when they're not watching? So Gideon, what is, Gideon wasn't the only one with doubts in his town. The people of Israel had doubted God and turned away from him. They had set up uh, altars to Baal and set up altars to Asherah, these other gods of the people around them, and they had put their trust in them instead of the God of Israel. They were not happy at all when Gideon destroys those altars. In fact, they try to kill him when they find out it was him. I love Gideon's father's response to him. And keeping in mind, it's his father's property where these altars and Asherah poles are on, meaning most likely his father is also worshiping at those altars. Judges chapter 6, verse 31 says, But Joash, Gideon's father, said to all who stood against Gideon, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. In other words, if Baal is real, then let him come and deal with Gideon. Not only had Gideon had a conversation with God and gotten a sign that he asked for, but he also sees his father start to turn away from the doubt in God and the, the worshiping of other uh, other altars. You'd think at this point that Gideon would be willing to do anything that God asks, no questions. But he asks for another sign. Two more, in fact. This is part of the Gideon story that you're probably the most familiar with, his fleece. It says, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am a stubborn, hard-headed person. Gideon is my people. But boy, how many signs do you need? The angel, the fire on the rock, his father starting to turn uh, back towards God, the fleece the first time, the fleece... Gideon doesn't really get it, does he? Gideon has so many doubts that he has let control his life for so long. Even in the face of God doing miraculous things, Gideon's still like, that was cool, but one more time. What's it going to take for him to listen? What's it going to take for us to listen to the voice of God over the voice of all of our doubts? 
you need an angel? You need fire? Do you have a fleece ready in your closet somewhere? What would it take for us to stop letting the doubts drive the narrative of our story? I think so often we can focus on what we can't do instead of what God can. Last week, John mentioned that we had the opportunity to uh, virtually attend the Youth Pastor Summit. And one of the uh, speakers at that summit, a guy named Kurt Johnson, spent his entire session talking about can't. He listed all these things that he cannot do. And then flipped it and challenged us to focus on the things that we can instead of what we can't. A simple change. I love that. It's so easy for us to focus on the negative. We all have stories of our failures and things that we can list. So easy for us to focus on the things that we can't do. We can make a pretty long list, usually. And we can let that create doubt in us. We need to instead shift our focus, focus on what God can instead of what we can't. Many of us spend, up, spend years building up and emboldening this voice of can't in our head, keeping us from doing things because we doubt that we're capable. You know, there's a pretty good chance that a lot of the things on your can't list are accurate. You really can't do those things. But that list doesn't have anything to do with what God can do. As we continue through Gideon's story, we see a powerful reminder of this. The Midianites and the Amalekites and some other people around uh, Israel have joined forces and they've made camp getting ready to attack Israel. And God has Gideon sound a trumpet and send out messengers to call to collect an army to face this army that's forming against them. And some 30,000 men respond. Gideon has a pretty good army, a fairly good chance in this battle. But God knows that with that many people, and it being the Israelites, that it's really going to be easy for them to think that it was them that won. That it'd be easy for them to get to the end of the battle and say, see how awesome we are? And so God starts to winnow out that 30,000. In Judges chapter 7, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any of, anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. 
and let all the others go every, uh, go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So here's Gideon's army. 300 men and Gideon versus this mass of Amalekites and Midianites. By the numbers, Gideon is vastly overwhelmed. He could easily look at the number and say, no, not doing that. God has him go down to the camp to list it in because again, we see in Gideon's story like he needs like a lot of reminders. Right? And God says, if you're afraid, then go down and listen to what's being said in the camp. And so Gideon takes one guy with him and they go down and they hear a conversation of two people in the Midianite Amalekite camp talking about a dream that they had. A dream of this bread rolling into the camp and flipping over tents and it's a very strange dream. And the other guy goes, clearly this is Gideon and the sword of Gideon because the Lord has handed the Midianites into his hand. And Gideon goes, all right. And he goes back to his 300 men. He's like, we got a plan. He's filled with confidence now, right? And so he takes the craziest plan ever. He takes his 300 men with a trumpet and a torch and a bottle. And he spreads them out around the perimeter of the Midianite Amalekite camp. He says, listen, on, on my count... We're going to break the jars and all scream, for the Lord and for Gideon. That's the plan. I don't know what the 300 men were thinking. I can think of a few things that would have come to my mind had any of my commanders in the army ever said, here's your jar. But they follow, and they all blow the trumpets at the same time, and they break their jars, and they all scream, for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Midianites freak out. They think that they're surrounded by this vast army. And the Amalekites and the Midianites get so freaked out that they start turning on each other and battling each other and scattering. And Gideon and his army follow after them. And the Midianites are routed and given over to the Israelites. It's a crazy strategy. One that could have easily found its way onto the can't list. How often do we focus on what we can't do instead of what God can do? Dr. J. Strack presents a challenge about this same idea, a challenge to focus on what God can instead of what we can't. He phrases it this way, what would you do for the glory of God if you knew that you would not fail? What would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? If can't wasn't a thing. What if you flipped your focus and focused on what God can instead of what you can't? You'd think that after everything that Gideon had seen and been through, that there would be no way that he would ever doubt again, right? The Gideon story must end with this happy ever after, but it doesn't. Judges chapter 8 says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. 
Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there and became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Even after everything, Gideon ends up back in a very similar position to where we find him in the beginning. He set up a different idol for the people of Israel to come and worship at instead of God. You see, whether it's filled with failure or success, our past isn't a prediction of our future. It's a really important reminder, I think, sometimes for us. At the beginning of Gideon's story, we hear him lay out all of the reasons why his past shows that he couldn't possibly be used by God to deliver Israel. I'm weak. There's no way I can do this. At the end of the story, we see Gideon coasting on the success that he's had and setting himself up to be worshipped. For many of us, it's difficult not to let our past hiccups determine our future decisions. It's difficult for us not to allow the mistakes that we've made, the oversights, to cripple us into inaction. It could also be difficult for us not to just coast on our success. I think I've had more than my fair share of both. I I could uh, list, as we close this morning, countless stories of times that I've had just a a modicum of success and could have tried to just ride that to the end. I can list a lot of stories of times that I've failed. A lot of times that I've messed it up just in life, let alone in ministry. I could give you the rundown of my family history or recount so many stories of times that I wildly messed it up could easily convince myself to listen to the doubting voice saying, maybe God didn't choose you. Maybe God doesn't want to use you. If we let them, our successes can make us forget and doubt our need for God. If we're not careful, we can let our failures build in us an identity that we are incapable It could foster a self-doubt that will narrate everything else in our life and grow a voice that tells us that we can't. Instead, we need to keep our eyes locked on Jesus. We all have doubts. A lot of them we keep to ourselves that we don't even ever mention. Doubts are common, and God isn't bothered by them. But if we let our doubts convince us of what we can't do, instead of focusing on what our God can do, we miss out on what he's calling us to. 
You read all through the Bible, you won't find a single story of some wildly qualified individual that God called. It was always the people that had a long list of why it shouldn't be them. And God said, I don't care about that. I care about you following me. And if you do, watch what I will do through you wildly unqualified person. This morning as we as we worship, invite you to use this stage as an altar to come and just lay those doubts and say, God, there, here's my can't list. Here's my long list of reasons why you should not use me. But I'll give that to you and let you do what you do and use me.